So where do you turn when your life gets turned upside down? How do you wrestle through the doubts that find their ways into your mind, particularly during a season of difficulty? How do you respond when God seems idle? What do you do when he seems indifferent to your suffering or the sufferings around you? How do you reconcile God's character with the evil that exists in this world? Well, as an expression of his tender love for us, God has allowed this message of the prophet Habakkuk to be recorded in part to help us navigate through those types of questions. What do we do in the midst of suffering and difficulties when it seems that God is distant? How do we reconcile those two realities? And so not only is the fact that Habakkuk is recorded an expression of his love for us, but also as an expression of his grace He's, giving, he's given this church a growing number of men who are able to rightly handle the word of God. My soul has been served over the last few weeks, sitting under faithful preaching of the word here in this church. And so I am thankful to God today to continue our series on the backs of the labors of brothers that have walked us through Habakkuk 1 and Habakkuk 2. The testimony of Habakkuk is really such a relevant story for each of us this morning because each of us knows what it's like to have questions, to look around and to, to begin to wonder, how do I reconcile what I see with what I have heard or what I believe about God? Each one of us knows what it's like to, to have complaints against God, to wrestle with God. And so not only is this a relevant story because we understand those feelings, it's also an inspiring story. It's an inspiring story because in chapter one, we see a man who is wrestling in anger and complaint with God. And when we get to chapter three, he is a different man. Habakkuk has been changed by the God that he has cried out to. And in that, Habakkuk serves as an invitation. It's an invitation for each of us this morning to take our complaints, to take our questions, to take our doubts and lean into, run to the one who has the answers. Don't give in to the temptation that because difficult days are here, we then run away from the one who holds all hope. This call is a call for us not to trust and hope in man-made things. It's a call and an invitation for, for us to trust in the God who is powerful over all things and the God who, who is good in all things. And for those of us who are Christians, this just reminds us, and perhaps you're not a Christian, this may be helpful for you to hear this morning. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with the ways of God. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we will never have bad days. We'll never go through seasons of suffering and pain. No, being a Christian means that we have learned by grace alone, through faith alone. It's We've learned how to live this life and navigate these difficult days by faith. We've learned that there is a future, God-saturated hope in which the earth is filled with his glory. And we learn with unimaginable joy that our hope is found in God and not in our changing circumstances. And so that's been my prayer this week. My prayer this week is that this sermon would lead us to those realities, that we would be challenged to live by faith, that we would be encouraged to look to God, 
and that we would enjoy him, not only for what he does, but we would enjoy him because of who he is. And so with those three hopes in mind, let's go to God and ask him by his Holy Spirit to grant us grace over the next few minutes together. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come to you, perhaps some of us coming to you in the middle of darkness, gasping and grasping all around, looking for something that would provide security, looking for some semblance of hope. God, for those wearied souls, I pray that they would find it in you this morning. And for those of us who by your grace are standing confidently this morning on the hope that is found in God alone, would you use this sermon to encourage us to be anchored even stronger to the rock of ages. God, would you meet us in our places of need? And would you grow us? We don't want to leave unchanged. So our greatest need this morning is for you to meet with us and to change us. For that to happen, we beg you to use this sermon in ways that man can't manufacture. And so may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Habakkuk chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bibles, uh, or Bible, uh, there's usually a set of pages somewhere between Jeremiah and Matthew that are really sticky. Habakkuk finds its way in those sticky pages. As we heard the word of God read this morning, Habakkuk chapter 3, the three, the chapter is going to be the larger numbers, will be in verses 1 through 15. Those will be the smaller numbers under that heading. As we heard Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 15 read this morning, perhaps you were tempted to think, this is, this is unimpressive. I just heard the word of God read, what is the big deal about a prophet who finds himself praying? Seems pretty normal. It's what prophets would do. They would pray to God. They would get a message. God then would give them a platform to proclaim that message. And so while this seems pretty normal, what's surprising is that the disposition of this prophet's heart has, has changed drastically in just three short chapters. Remember, the book began with Habakkuk questioning and complaining God about all the wickedness and the violence and injustice, not that he saw out there, but with the wickedness and the violence and the injustice that he saw the people of God performing. And so he cried out to God saying, God, do you not care? Do you not care about what your people are doing? Do you not care about the harm that they are inflicting? It seemed to Habakkuk that God was indifferent to it all that God was tolerating sin. Habakkuk cried out, and in great mercy, God responded. He responded to make sure that Habakkuk knew that he would indeed punish the wickedness of his people and that he would do it in the most unusual of means. He would use another evil, wicked nation to bring his justice and judgment to his chosen people. Well, this only intensified Habakkuk's turmoil, so he complains yet again, letting God know that he's not going anywhere until he hears from God, Habakkuk 2, verse 1. And again, in great mercy, God responds. Don't, don't miss the expression of his mercy in that reality. God hears the prayers of his people. And in his timing and in his ways, he graciously responds. And sometimes in his timing and because of his ways, he responds in ways that are contrary to what we had expected. 
And so he tells Habakkuk to write down his response, not just for him, but for future generations. And he tells him to pull out his calendar, to remember that God's timetable is different from man's. And so God makes clear in Habakkuk chapter 2 that after God uses this evil nation to bring justice to his people, he will then bring justice to the evil nation. At no point is God going to allow wickedness and injustice and oppression and violence to go unaddressed. And that should be a cause of comfort to our hearts today as we look out and we see a world rampant with wickedness and evil and injustice. And perhaps your question and your prayer this morning has been, God, where are you at? Where are you at? Rest assured that the God who is the same yesterday, day, and forever, he will punish and bring justice to all evil and to all injustice. And the same message that God gave Habakkuk then is the message that we need to hear today. His timing is different than ours. But he is faithful to his word. This encounter leads Habakkuk to be able to see this future hope where there is the earth filled with God's glory. And then we reach chapter three, our text this morning, and what we find is that this man is a man who has emerged, transformed because of the wrestling, because of the questioning, because of the praying that he has done with God. And let's just be clear, brothers and sisters. Part of God's design for your dark days, part of God's design for your difficult seasons, part of God's design for your sufferings and your trials, they're meant to draw you closer to God so that you would wrestle with God, so that you would then be changed by God. And so again, just at the outset this morning, it would serve our hearts and souls well to ask, in the midst of difficulty, are you running away from the one who is meant to provide hope and change? Are you running away from the one who has answers? No matter what this world holds out, you will not find the answers to the questions that your soul has in the midst of dark seasons apart from God. They're not there. You will get answers, but they will not be the answers that you need, nor the ones that will serve you in the days ahead. And so if you're not leaning in, if you're not running to God in the midst of your trials, then let's learn from Habakkuk. We are not responding to our trials in the ways in which God is honored, in the way in which God intends. Habakkuk is no longer questioning by the time we reach chapter 3. And what's surprising is that circumstantially, nothing has changed. It's not that somehow there's now this massive new set of circumstances that Habakkuk is living in. No, circumstantially, nothing has changed, and yet his heart has changed. His perspective has changed. And in our passage this morning, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3, Habakkuk wants to comfort and strengthen our souls as we seek to reconcile the character of God with the evil around us. Does God hear? Does God care? Is God good? Will God act? Two sermon points this morning that will help us walk through this passage. Those two sermon points will also serve as two application points. And so if your question throughout the sermon is, well, what do I do? Read the sermon points. That's how we respond. Two sermon points. Number one, Plead God's mercy. Plead God's mercy. We see this in verses one and two. And number two, remember God's works. We see this in verses three through 15. Next week, we're gonna cover the last four verses of chapter three, but I just wanna be clear. We broke up these sermons not because chapter three is meant to be broken up, we broke up the sermons because of a long-winded preacher. And so as we're thinking about chapter 3, don't divorce the last four verses 
Next week, we'll really try to tie them together. But I don't want you to think that somehow the prayer ends at verse 15. The whole chapter is a prayer that Habakkuk prays. And what we find, beginning in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, that deep questions to God, chapter 3 results in deep praise to God. Deep questions leads us to deep praise. And so how would Habakkuk call us to navigate through difficult days? Number one, he would call us to plead God's mercy. Plead God's mercy. Beg, lay hold of. Don't merely ask and walk away and forget. Continually throw yourself, avail yourself to God, begging him for mercy. Look at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Verse 1 draws our attention to this prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk. And if you were to look down at verse 19, the very ending after the prayer, what we find is that this isn't only a prayer, this is a song. It's for the choir director on my stringed instruments. It's a song. It's a prayer that's expressed in a song. Why would you put a prayer and set it to music in a song? Because songs teach. Songs help us know theology. It's theology put to music, and it sticks with us because it helps us to remember. Right? That's why growing up, if you're struggling to memorize something, what, it, what, what normally would help you? I'm trusting this helped everybody. It helped me. Just coming up with weird songs that had the things that you need to memorize in the song. Right? Songs have the ability to help you remember, and it sticks with you. If you think I'm crazy, listen to 80s ballads. 80s ballads. Those who wrote 80s ballads, They got this. Songs stick with you. Bad example. Think of hymn writers. Hymn writers. They want us to learn and to remember truths about God. And so they set rich theological truths to music. And so when we wonder, who is God? When we wonder, how is God? We can begin to, ah, here is love vast as the ocean. We begin to remember the theology, the the truths that we believe about God put in the form of songs. I'd love for us to sing Habakkuk chapter 3, but since I'm the one primarily behind the mic that wouldn't serve any of us, but in your own time, we just encourage you, read through, maybe even try to find some type of tune and just belt out Habakkuk chapter 3. Right? You have the invitation. It's according to Shigianoth. So get Shiggy with it. <laughs> Prayer. I'm sorry, it was right there. Uh, some, uh, just to be clear, Shigianoth, it's either, uh, it's, it's also mentioned in Psalm 7. So it's either a type of lament or it's something referring to the musical uh, instrumentation. But either way, uh, there you have a good joke. Uh, Prayer, prayer is when we come into the presence of God uh, to have a conversation with God. And yet during difficult days, if we're not careful, oftentimes we reduce prayer to wanting deliverance from God, never coming into the presence of God. And so we're content to fire long-distance prayers, showing really that we're missing the point of prayer. We pray not because we're trying to inform God of something that he doesn't know. We pray not because we're trying to change God's mind about something. We pray because God has so ordained his purposes to be unfolded and executed on the prayers of his people. And we also pray because what's in need of change most in the midst of our prayers is not our circumstances, it's not God, it's us. And persistent prayer does that. 
over time, it will change us. And many of us, quite frankly, are not changed during our trials simply because we don't pray. We grumble, we get frustrated, we vent to everyone but God. And Habakkuk, just a simple yet needed reminder and even a call to action in this first, these first two verses. When you do not know what God is doing, when you don't understand what God is doing, when you don't see what God is doing, even if you are questioning, believing in what he's doing, pray. Pray. Children, this isn't just advice for your parents. Begin the habit in the midst of difficulties of training your heart to run to God and pray and wait. And even when you do know, and even when you do understand, and even when you do see, and even when you do believe, pray. Verse 2 helps us better understand what the substance of Habakkuk's prayer is. He tells us that he heard the report, and so he pleads. What did he hear? He heard the report of what God had done, and then he pleaded with God. He pleaded two things, that God would revive that work and that he would work mercy in the middle of wrath. So two things he prays for. Would you revive what I have heard and would you work mercy, grant mercy in wrath? Habakkuk here is submitting himself to the work of God. The report that he heard, either are either it's the stories that he heard growing up. The stories of God's faithfulness every time a dark season enveloped and sort of engulfed and consumed the people of God. God has always been about providing deliverance for his people. That's the report he's recalling, or it's the report that God has told him about in chapters 1 and 2. And this report, look at verse 2. I have heard the report about you, and I fear. This report has induced fear in Habakkuk, the prophet. Not, not I'm scared to death, haunted house type fear, a holy reverence and awe of God. He's asking God to judge the sin of his people. He's also asking God to judge the sin of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians who will come in. And we saw in chapter 2 those woe oracles that Micah referenced last week. Every one of those oracles reminds us that God rages against sin. And his righteous anger will be poured out on sin and on sinners. And yet in the midst of his desire to see God's justice, what Habakkuk knows is that if his justice comes and his justice begins to look down and is pouring out onto his people, they're not safe. That if what's required is justice, then that means everyone who's guilty is in trouble. And so in the midst of longing for justice, Habakkuk prays, in your wrath, in your justice, in your judgment, would you remember mercy? All of chapter one was about God's judgment on God's people. Chapter two was about God's judgment on the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And in the midst of this awe-inspiring message of judgment, this stunning theme of mercy melts the heart it's as if the canvas is being painted. God and Habakkuk are talking, and there's really two colors that are being used. It's the black and it's the white. And there's justice and there's evil, and it's these stark, kind of muted tones. And then all of a sudden, Habakkuk prays for the brilliant colors of mercy to begin to streak across the canvas. In the midst of wrath, in the midst of what we're deserving of, would there be something that we're undeserving of? And if you're a human, which I'm assuming everyone in here is, you understand this. That in our longing for justice, to be consistent, 
we have to understand that if we want God to undo every wrong and we want God to judge and to make right and to put away all of the injustice and the violence and the wickedness, that means that we then are a part of the problem. If God is only wrathful, then no one stands a chance because every one of us are guilty. Every one of us, you, you are plagued by a disease called sin that's far worse than anything that cancer or any of the other uh, terrible afflictions that are temporary and that, that kill the body. We are plagued by a disease called sin that crushes, destroys the soul. And it has effects in our body. We're all guilty of this disease called sin because we all struggle at honoring God in the way he's to be honored, in worshiping God above everything else, in obeying him in all of his ways. And the temptation at this point is to think, listen, okay, I've got issues, but I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as other people that are doing X and Y and Z. And that's why the word of God serves as such a good mirror for us to look into. Because what we find when we look into this mirror is what we just walked through in the letter of James. James chapter 2, verse 10, just to give you an example. James chapter 2, verse 10, James reminds us that for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. You see, God's law isn't just some collection of random laws and random rules that he wants us to obey. No, it's one coherent, consistent, unified expression of who God is. It captures his heart, his standards, his wisdom, his values, his perfection. One commentator said, oftentimes we view God's law as sort of a heap of stones. And it would be easy for me just to go over and say, yeah, I struggle with these three stones, but look, there's still a heap there. And he said, no, no, the better analogy is that God's law is a sheet of glass. And that any transgression of it all, it doesn't just affect one part. If you shatter a part of the glass, all of the glass is broken. And this is what God's word holds out. The whole law of God is represented in each command. So the one command that perhaps you think is not that big of a deal, it still is an expression of everything that God is and everything God's deserving of. And if you cannot uphold all of them, then you are guilty of breaking all of them. Just like the moon is always there, even though we can only see certain parts of it, so too God's law. And so what's at stake every time we transgress, even in the small places, so we think? What's at stake is a rejection of God's authority, a failure of loving him, a breaking of his law, a violation of his will, and therefore a denial of his lordship. What he's worthy of, we say in our sin, I will not give you. In essence, we ourselves become God. Not submitting to the one who's God, but making judgments about the one who claims to be God. Friends, that is an act of cosmic treason that's deserving of an eternal damnation. And that's what every one of us will get. That's what every one of us are deserving of. If, that's what we'll get, if there's no mercy. Do you understand this morning that you deserve wrath because of your sin? Do you see your need for mercy? Not do you see your need for some reform where you try to be a better person. Do you see your need for mercy? For something that you can't do on your own? It brings us to our second point. How do we kind of stay grounded in the midst of difficult days? Pleading God's mercy. But secondly, remembering God's works. Remembering God's works. We see this in verses 3 through 15. 
After offering, after making known the request, he's asking for, Lord, would you revive your work and would you give mercy? So that he states sort of the request of the prayer. In verse three, sort of the trajectory of the prayer changes. He turns his eyes to the past and he turns his eyes to the past so that his heart would be strengthened for the difficult day. You look to the past to remember God's faithfulness so that you will not grow weary today and that you will be able to stand tomorrow. This is clearly the biblical example for every one of us, that we would look to God's past faithfulness as a means of future trust, especially during difficult and perplexing days. My heart grieves for friends that I have and family members that I have of people that do not trust or believe in God. When difficulties come their way, they begin to search and grope as though they have nowhere to go to even find some measure of stability. And I just see God's faithfulness to his people to say, no, no, we can look back. And we have the halls of all of human history testifying to the faithfulness of God. These verses really serve, verses 3 through 15 serve like a journal entry of a man who's just overflowing with the Bible. He knows the patterns of God. He knows the stories of God. He knows the ways of God. Those things have been recorded. They have been passed down. What we find is that Habakkuk is just tracing the themes of judgment and salvation through the history of God's people. Just in this moment, he looks back. Where is he going to draw encouragement for today and hope for tomorrow? He's going to draw it from God's past acts of faithfulness. He's going to recount God's, God's judgment, and then he's going to recount God's mercy. And again, what we're learning is that this is what has brought about the change in Habakkuk. He remembers, wait, God is the God who heard the prayers of Israel and who delivered them. And that gives him confidence that God will hear his prayers and deliver him. Notice what he says he remembers there. Just we'll we'll walk through these few verses. Verses three and four. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are references to the area and the mountains that are surrounding Mount Sinai. Habakkuk is remembering the incredible way that God revealed himself at Sinai. If we were to flip over to Exodus chapter 19, you could read verses 16 through 20, but just look at verse 16. Exodus 19 verse 16. Moses is up on Mount Sinai when it came about on the third day when it was morning and there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet and all the people who were camped, they trembled together. Now look over in Habakkuk chapter three, verse four. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there's, there's the hiding of his power. Habakkuk is remembering how God revealed himself. God showed up when his people didn't know where they were gonna go. God showed up and provided deliverance. He met them in their place of need and Habakkuk looks back and he remembers. I'm calling out to you, oh Lord, you're the one who showed up at Mount Sinai. You revealed yourself. Habakkuk wasn't on Mount Sinai, but he has been familiarized. He has made himself a close companion to the ways of God. He has studied and remembered the stories. Verse 5, he remembers the same revealing God who came to them at Sinai also delivered his people from the hands of the Egyptians. He talks about before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. This is a clear reference to the plagues that were poured out on the Egyptians. Do you know why and how God's people made it to Mount Sinai to have that vision and to receive the law 
It's because he set them free by plagues and pestilence. He delivered his people. He provided salvation. In the midst of his judgment against sin, he provided mercy. And that's what Habakkuk is remembering. Verse 6, he recalls God's power in creation and just the general dominion that he exercises over them. He stands and he surveys the earth. He looks and he startles the nations. The perpetual mountains, those ancient hills that had seemed to have just they seem to have been there forever. They shatter and they tremble before the power of this God. He moves there from just general sovereignty over his creation to begin to talk about how he not just got people out of Egypt, but then how he led them into the promised land. Verse seven, talking about the way in which he destroyed the people that were in the promised land. Even look down in verse 11. The sun and the moon stood in their places. All of these are a reference to to the book of Joshua. God clearing the land. And then God making, Joshua chapter 10. God making the sun stand still so that he would bring justice on wickedness through the people of God. God is demonstrating. He has demonstrated. And Habakkuk is just calling out, remembering. God, you have been faithful. God, in the midst of... When, when, when there was question about whether or not you would bring judgment, you were faithful to bring judgment. And in every instance, you were also gracious to bring mercy. Judgment and mercy. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Habakkuk sort of questions God as if, God, are you angry at creation? Like, are you raging against the rivers? Are you raging against the seas? And even the question just reminds us that God has used the created order to further his purposes by judging his enemies and delivering his people. Think of the Red Sea. God's people leaving. And they come to the edge of the sea and the enemy's coming behind them. And what's he do? He He comes against the natural order of creation to provide a deliverance for his people and then to provide judgment for the enemies. We see this in the flood. The waters of his wrath, and yet he provides an ark of mercy for those that are undeserving, for those that would belong to him. Over and over, uh, verses 12 through 15, God's wrath was not against the rivers or the waters, but God was using those means to achieve the destruction of his enemies and the deliverance of his people. And herein lies the heart of Habakkuk's prayer. He's not merely kind of, let's think about the good old days. I don't know what to pray. My mind is wandering. So let me just think about the good old days. That's not what Habakkuk is doing. He's not living in the past because the present is too difficult. He is remembering that the Lord split the earth with rivers in the wilderness in order to sustain his people. He's remembering that the mountains trembled because the Lord came down to make a covenant with his people. He's remembering that the Red Sea and the Jordan River submitted to the Lord because the Lord was delivering his people from enemies. He's remembering that the sun and moon stood still so that the people of God might render judgment upon God's enemies. What Habakkuk is doing is preaching to his own heart. He's seeking to motivate his heart so that he would not grow unbelieving in difficult days that are marked by evil. And he writes this, and it's preserved so that you and I would do the same that we would not fall into unbelief because the days are evil. Habakkuk's situation is not new. God has judged his people in the past not to wipe them away, but to purify them. And God has had enemies in the past, and he has soundly defeated every enemy on every occasion. God's people have been in distress numerous times in the past, and God has delivered them. 
Habakkuk is looking back so that he might look forward. He's looking back in remembrance so that he will be able to look forward in faith. He's remembering so that he might remain faithful. Brothers and sisters, can I call us to remember? No matter how bad you want to remember the ways of God, if you do not read his word, you will not remember. Regularly, consistently read the word. You have been given a gift of grace in the word of God. It is crazy that in our day, there are so many biblically illiterate Christians. May it not be so. And may it not be so merely because we want to be academic and heady. No, because we want to remain faithful. Read the word of God. Read Christian biographies. Read stories of other saints who faced difficult days and remained faithful. And ask yourself as you're reading those, what's the essential ingredient to their perseverance? How do they stay faithful? And look how it's this good deposit of remembering God's faithfulness. Share stories of God's faithfulness with one another. Friends, this is why community is vital. Is because dark seasons and difficult days will come into your life. And when they do, oftentimes, those clouds of darkness sort of obscure the rays of confidence in God's work. And when you can't see the work of God, you need brothers and sisters who will come up next to you and remind you of the work that you've even, you've even shared with them. Where perhaps at one point in your life, you saw and they saw God's faithfulness Come alongside another brother or sister and say, hey, you can't see this now, but do you remember when you shared the story of how God moved in this way? Perhaps even do this today over lunch. What's a story of God's faithfulness that you believe is just in the wellspring of riches that you return to so you don't forget? how faithful he's been. You see, the point is that God's people are never overcome to the degree that they would be separated from God. And the point is that God's enemies never have and ultimately never will conquer God or his people. God is always merciful to his people and he will always bring justice to his enemies. Verse 13 begins to kind of end our passage on this note of hopeful expectation that there is salvation. Verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people. Why did he come at Sinai? Why did he deliver in the Exodus? Why has he shown himself faithful? He has acted for the salvation of his people. His people could not achieve and secure salvation for themselves. That's what it means necessarily to be the people of God. It means that you are dependent upon God to do something for you that you can't do. And he says that salvation for his people came through the anointed, the promised Messiah. I mean, this takes us back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. God makes a promise to Satan and tells him that he will be crushed. I, I, I can't help but read verses 14, even 13, verses 13 and 14, and just see the imagery of the Bible that points us not to a mere temporary means of deliverance for God's people, but that maybe even a, kind of tunes us in to the ultimate means of deliverance for God's people. Verse, verse 13, you struck the head... At, of the house of the evil, to lay him open from thigh to neck. That means that is a utter destroy, utter destruction has, has happened. And the idea of crushing the head of the evil one, that takes us back to Genesis 3. Satan's head will be crushed. Verse 14, he's gonna pierce with the, their own spears. 
He's going to devour the oppressed in secret. And so that's the idea of piercing with someone's own arrows. Satan's arrow was death. And we look ahead and we just think, wait, God pierced himself with Satan's arrows. Satan thought that he was winning. But Jesus took the cross that was intended for his harm and he made it for our eternal good. And here's the reality. Habakkuk could look back in his day and he could remember events of deliverance and the salvation that God had provided. And yet we can look back and our position is a different position. And so when we look back, we not only see what Habakkuk saw, we see what Habakkuk never saw. We can look back and we can remember of the, all of the historical events of God's deliverance, there, there stands one that culminates. It's the climax of them all. It's the cross. And so at the center of this story, from cover to cover, Genesis Revelation, we see this plan of God to redeem for himself a people from among all peoples and how he's going to do that. The whole plan is moving towards a crescendo moment and then everything else happens in light of that crescendo moment. That crescendo moment is the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we can look back and we see the cross, and we can look back and we see the empty tomb, and we can look back and we can see that God uses the greatest evil in the history of humanity to accomplish the greatest good. He brings justice, and he provides mercy. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that God is in absolute control. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that sinners are being saved by faith in him alone. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that the enemies of God are being judged. It it seems weird to us that God would use painful experiences to accomplish his purposes, And if that's weird to us, the most difficult thing for us to comprehend would be this comforting reality of the cross, that God would send his son, he would use his son's suffering to accomplish his people's salvation. How in the world will his people ever be saved? What's not merely from opening the seas, because once they close again, there's going to be another enemy that they're going to have to face. And all of those enemies are pointing us to this ultimate enemy that man cannot defeat. And the Lord uses his son's suffering to accomplish his people's salvation. God's ways in Habakkuk may seem strange. And yes, God's ways in our lives may seem strange. But friends, look to the cross. Look to this objective truth of what Christ has done at a particular moment in history where he takes the penalty for our sins, the wrath that we talked about earlier that will come upon every sinner. God the Father poured that wrath out onto Jesus the Son. And in doing so, Jesus is taking the place of everyone who would turn from their sin and put their faith and their trust in that work. And for all who do, then the righteousness that Jesus earned, that's transferred on to them. And so Jesus takes our debt. We get his righteousness. And that sounds really good, except at the end of that story, there's still a dead man in a grave. But oh, it only lasted three days. Because on the third day, that fatal arrow of Satan, death, the one arrow that Satan thought would end all destruction and and, would end all warring, Jesus shows that he's even more powerful than the strongest of arrows, death itself. God the Father poured out his wrath on his son to bring us peace. He crushes his son to bring us life. His pain brings us peace, his death brings us life, and we find salvation in his sufferings. Friends, your suffering is temporary. Your dark days are temporary. Cancer is temporary. 
Tumors are temporary. Trials are temporary. Pain is temporary. Hurt and disease, temporary. Disaster, temporary. Death itself is temporary unless you go to your grave in your sin and then it's an eternal torment. In the midst of everything that is temporary, don't let everything temporary consume you. Look to the one who is eternal. That's the invitation of Habakkuk. Throw yourself upon him. Take joy in his salvation. Realize that your dark days are temporary and that your God is trustworthy. Stand strong in the high places because of his glory. Every story in the Bible of salvation is a signpost for you to not miss the one culmination of it all. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I would call you your only place for hope in the midst of wicked, evil days is in the refuge of the work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Will you please turn from your sin today? And will you run to the mercy that's found in Jesus alone? Church ought to be a people with which you can work through your doubts and you can find hope. And so if you have questions, talk to us. Reach out to us. If you have questions or you want to say, I am giving up my sin and I want to trust Jesus, let someone know. If you're watching online, follow up, reach out to us. It would be our joy to celebrate and to walk with you in the days ahead. And for those of us who are Christians, I end this way. You and I must understand what the cross really means. It means that there's no way that the plans of God can fail. You see, Habakkuk looked back and he remembered the faithfulness of God who had brought his people thus far and Habakkuk was not going to give up because he trusted in God. And the God who gave his only son to him and to his people, absolutely nothing can separate us from his love. No event, no person, no natural disaster, no sin. The plan of God is sure. And if we ever doubt that, we need to look no further than the cross. If God sent his son to die for our sins, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8, 32. And so just like Habakkuk, we look to the past in order to have faith for today and hope for tomorrow. And we can have this because we know God is doing all things for the good of his people and for his glory. So where do you turn during difficult days? I pray that we would turn to God. Let's pray. God, as your word has gone forth, would you, in this moment of silence, give us clear steps of obedience. Speak to us by your spirit. Recall your word that we would know how to act in light of what has gone forth. And so speak now to us, O Lord. Your servants are listening.